Welcome, everyone, and uh, thank you all for joining us today at Hudson. Um, it's nice to see a strong turnout uh, for this panel on Liao Xiaobo and his legacy in the new China that is now being created by Xi Jinping and others in the Communist Party. As all of you know, the renowned writer and Nobel Peace Prize laureate Liao Xiaobo died of cancer this past July while serving an 11-year prison sentence in China for the crime of inciting subversion of state power. Chinese authorities repeatedly denied Liu's request to seek medical treatment abroad and to die as a free man. Next week, the Chinese Communist Party will convene its 19th Congress, and Xi Jinping is widely expected to cement his power as the general secretary of the party. In advance of this, Xi and the Communist Party have been running the most intense campaign of suppression against Chinese advocates of constitutionalism, rule of law, and human rights since arguably the era of the massacre at Tiananmen in 1989. I believe we can trace the roots of the current campaign back to 2008, which was a decisive turning point in the history of the modern PRC. It was also the year of Liu Xiaobo's fourth and final arrest by communist authorities. Liu had been apprehended then for his role as the lead author and organizer of Charter 08, a powerful appeal for nonviolent civic action by the Chinese people to replace the PRC's Leninist one-party dictatorship with a civil democracy based on rule of law and human rights. Liu's great hope, like that of hundreds of millions of Chinese, was that China would democratize and become a force for peace and stability in the world. He was not only a fearless advocate for democratic change, but a brilliant analyst of the psychology of hatred and enmity that sustains totalitarian rule and that the party has consciously tried to stir up. Most of all, he called on China and the true friends of China elsewhere in the world at large to imagine a future China that was not dominated by the Communist Party. The party, as we know, has had very different plans. Indeed, its ongoing crackdown is part and parcel of a larger effort to refashion the governing arrangements inside PRC, including the relationship between the party and the people, and to preserve its monopoly on power. In 1978, we can recall Deng Xiaoping had faced a threat to the survival of the party's rule and responded with reform and opening up. And that entailed a limiting of the party's control in certain spheres of public life. The reform era required the creation of a whole bunch of things that had never existed inside the PRC, and over 30 years' time, something akin to the mediating structures of civil society that one finds in normal countries had begun to emerge and establish themselves and show enormous life and vitality. A generation later, however, the party has clearly concluded that Deng Xiaoping's approach to saving the party has itself created a menace to the survival of the party and its future, and so the party state has been reasserting its control over various spheres, and the zone of extra-party power within China is shrinking. Years ago, Liu had warned about this, arguing that if the party had chosen this path in the future, then it would be ruinous for China, and that the PRC would become a threat to liberal democracy globally, as well as to the peace in Asia. The truth of what Liu Xiaobo had foretold is, in my view, clearly seen today in the garrison states that we've seen build up in Tibetan and Xinjiang, as well as in China itself, and also in the hostile efforts that the Communist Party has undertaken to destabilize the peace, both in the Pacific maritime realm, as well as in the Himalayas. To discuss Liu Xiaobo's ideas, 
uh, and indeed his legacy in um, Xi Jinping's China. We have, I'm very happy and honored by the presence of a number of, of really insightful uh, scholars, and practitioners, and friends of Liao Xiaobo uh, here today. Um, our first speaker will be Professor Xu Youyu, uh, formerly from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Uh, he is, for anybody who has an interest in Chinese intellectual affairs, one of China's leading scholars, was a signatory of Charter 08 himself, and um, is pr presently in New York uh, uh, at the New School for Universe, uh, New School uh, in New York. After Professor Xu, we'll hear from Ambassador Mark Lagan who's currently at the Friends of the Global Fight Against AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. He's well known to all of us as well as the former head of Freedom House. Uh, he's also at Georgetown University, and we're delighted that he's here. Next, we'll have Jared Genzer, who is uh, the managing director of Perseus Strategies, the founder of Freedom Now, and uh, also, very importantly, the former legal counsel to Leo Xiaobo as well as the current legal counsel to Liu Xia, Liu Xiaobo's wife. Um, and finally, we'll have my friend uh, Jen Li Young, who is the president of Initiatives for China, a very important US-based uh, organization that is working, among other things, to help realize Liu Xiaobo's vision for a peaceful, democratic, and just China. Um, uh, thank you all again for joining us. And we'll begin with Professor Xu, who uh, as a friend here who's going to help translate uh, with some of his presentation first. Thank you. I'd like to speak in Chinese. 2009年3月10日, Liu Xiaobo的律师 Mo Saoping先生, 北京电影学院教授崔瑞平活活, 代表刘晓波和林巴县长的签署者在布拉格领取一个人权奖, 从瓦茨拉夫·哈维尔总统手中结果奖状后，我在答谢词中说：“中国人在争取民主、自由和公民权利的斗争中，将始终坚持和平、理性与非暴力原则。”On March 10, 2009, in Prague, I received the Human Rights Prize from former Czech President Havel on behalf of Mr. Mo Xiaoping, Liu Xiaobo's then attorney and Professor Chu Weiping of the Beijing. Film Academy and other signatories of the Charter 08. It was there I gave remarks reiterating our position on the principle of nonviolence in our peaceful and rational struggle for democracy, freedom, and citizen rights. 在他生前发起或参与的社会抗议或公民维权运动中，在他撰写的文章、起草的公开信中，他反复声张或捍卫这个原则，严以批判、坚决抵制采用暴力的主张或实行极端的非理性的行动方式。The principle of peace and rationality and nonviolence is the most important legacy from Liu Xiaobo, who throughout his life consistently defended. In his essays, open letters, and social resistance and civil rights defense struggles, while severely, severely criticized and resisting the attitude of violence, not to mention extreme and irrational actions. Liu Xiaobo's faith,理性和非暴力的原则，首先源于他的思考和阅读。文化大革命结束的十来年，意识形态的控制和灌输放松。中国人对于外部世界和外国历史的了解大大的增加 
非暴力运动的倡导者甘地和马丁·路德·金的传记和主张，带给中国人新的启示。刘晓波接受了新的理念，他理解和欣赏非暴力抵抗的原则，并终身信奉和坚持它。Extensive reading and thinking helped Mr. Liu Xiaobo embrace this principle of peace, irrationality, and nonviolence. Following the Cultural Revolution, China experienced a decade of lesson. Grave on the control of ideology and its reinforce and its enforcement, so people began learning more of outside world and foreign history, particularly、uh, Muhammad Gandhi and his nonviolence movement. And the life of Martin Luther King Jr. also inspired the Chinese. Mr. Liu Xiaobo accepted these new attitude. He understood and appreciated the principle of nonviolence. And defend it and adhere to it throughout his life. 崇拜和使用暴力是中国共产党的传统和意识形态的主要元素。中国人从儿童时代起就熟知毛泽东的格言：“枪杆子里面出政权。”革命不是请客吃饭，革命是暴动，是一个阶级推翻另一个阶级的暴虐的行动。刘晓波对于中共的信条具有特别强烈的批判精神。他在青年时代就彻底抛弃了中共的暴政。The violence is part of the communist cult. It's used by the Communist Party of China, remain a dominating element in the party's ideology. The Chinese people, since their childhood, have been familiarized with Mao Zedong's motto: "Power comes from the barrel of a gun." Also, among the communist slogans, "Revolution is not a dinner party." But a but a violent rebellion in which one social class violently throw overthrow the other, and Liu Xiaobo since his youth has been a powerful critic of the communist cult of violence, and therefore he rejected totally ever since. 在发起和领导中国的社会抗议运动的过程中，刘晓波加深了对于和平理性与非暴力原则的信念。他指出，暴力行动其实正中统治者的下怀，因为真正掌握暴力的是统治者。使用和鼓吹暴力给中国当权者严厉的镇压借口，而极端的非理性的言行言行达不到预想效果，只能造成混乱和分裂。作为中国民权运动的领导人，刘晓波不遗余力的与极端的言论和行为进行斗争。While leading social protest and democracy movement in China. Liu Xiaobo acquired a better understanding of the principle of peace, rationality, and nonviolence. He pointed out that whoever used violence would fall into the trap of the ruling class, which in reality poses the ultimate violence. The use and promotion of violence would become an excuse for the communist regime to carry out a brutal crackdown. Extreme, irrational, verbal expression and actions. Would bring chaos and divisiveness before any any expected or desired goals. So, as a leader of the China Civil Rights Movement, Liu Xiaobo consistently and relentlessly resisted extreme words and actions. In Liu Xiaobo's death on the second day, Chinese broadcasters 我坚定地回答：“不会，这个原则已经为中国社会所接受，并且深入人心。”
And on the second day of Mr. Liu Xiaobo's death, I had an interview uh, with Radio France International, uh, and then I was asked if such a principle of peace, rationality, and nonviolence would be abandoned after Liu's death. My answer was a firm no, because this principle has been widely accepted by the Chinese society, and the people embrace it from the bottom of their hearts. 采访之后，我收到了一份呼吁书，有二十三位刚从监狱、二十三位从监狱里出来的政治犯向中国大陆的全体公民呼吁：非暴力仍然是我们不可动摇的原则。我想，既然他们这些受迫害或蹂躏最深重的人都能坚持非暴力，其他人一定也能够做到。And after the interview with、uh, Radio France International, I received an open letter from 23 former. Political prisoners on the mainland China who had appealed to the Chinese public that nonviolence、uh, shall be our unwavering principle, and I believe in these ravaged victims who have confidence in the principle of nonviolence despite their utmost unbearable suffering from communist oppression, and therefore I believe that all other Chinese can adopt the same principles. 非暴力抗争是争取民族的唯一手段。刘晓波的精神遗产将得到继承或发扬。So、uh, the nonviolence means shall be our only tool to achieve a democracy, and we shall carry out Mr. Liu Xiaobo's legacy to go on his cause. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Xu, as well as、uh, to the translator.、Uh, next, we'll have Ambassador Lagan. Well, it's a, a special pleasure to be here with you, Eric. Thank you for convening this, and、uh, it's an honor to be here with、um, some really devoted voices to freedom in China. China is、uh, the most important governance problem in the world,、uh, a problem for the people of China, but also questions of models for the world and for Um, governance、uh, multilaterally in the world, and、uh, Liu Xiaobo represents, in what he did in his life, his imprisonment and his demise,、um, so much that's important about that governance problem. I wanted to raise a few things contextually,、um, as someone who's you know an observer of human rights、um, globally. One is. How essential it is for those who are men and women in the area of the arts and letters、um, to be supported by the international community.、Um, it has often been a driver of dissent, effective dissent, spirit,、uh, nonviolent methods tied with a nonviolent philosophy. When it has come from people like Lu Xiaobo, and I hope we'll talk a little bit more later about what it is that. That he saw the communist government as trying to foment in Chinese society to maintain its grip. But、um, as as we have a, a, our hearts sink with his passing and the strong grip of the Chinese government, it is re- worth remembering、um, Václav Havel and the kind of role that someone like Liu can play and will play in China. Secondly,、um, I think it's really important to just we all know Charter. O eight is、um, the primary reason why he was jailed and silenced.、Um, those efforts by nonviolent civil society
leaders and thinkers um, to use footholds in existing law or constitutions to call into question the hypocrisies of autocracies are particularly important. It was that effort um, to show that the rights embodied in the Chinese constitution are, are not actually being met and could be met um, that are important. It's, it's worth thinking about how, um, to use an old-fashioned expression, um, the regime of the Castro brothers had Oswaldo Poya um, rubbed out uh, and eliminated as a voice for his role similarly in leading a movement to petition based on things in the law. And I, I've, having worked with his daughter, uh, Rosa Maria, I have a, a sense that that's particularly what was, what was vital there. I think it's worth us, you know, sort of um, returning to seven years ago and thinking about Liu being given the Nobel Prize in October, the ceremony in December, and just how much energy and political capital the Chinese government used to try to intimidate other countries not to take part in the celebration. We've seen um, the Chinese government's tentacles as an information matter and an intimidation of those who'd speak up for Tibetans or for um, uh, you know, uh, political descent in China reach outward. But that effort really shows you just how intent the Chinese government isn't only on keeping its grip on rule at home, but how it is seen, and hence um, it, its uh, role as a model. I think it's worth thinking about, since the time um, that Liu Xiaobo was awarded the Nobel Prize, that that has a, a been coincident from a shift from intense repression to intensified repression in China, uh, in particular under Xi Jinping. And as the Chinese party comes together with its Congress to lay out its plans for leadership, it is worth thinking about the kinds of intensified squeeze. Um, a couple of reports that were conceived, um, prepared, or released during my tenure leading Freedom House um, the report on Polit the Politburo's predicament and the report on religious repression um, and spiritual awakening in China, the battle for China's spirit, capture exactly that trend under Xi Jinping. It's important, I think, to think about civil society's role in two ways embodied in the life and symbol of Liu Xiaobo. One is that, of course, civil society is crucial for the bringing about of democracy, a, a, a vision of an institutionalized rule of law, not just rule of law on paper. Um, for those who sort of say there isn't any civil society in, in China, that's dead wrong. But it, it's worth thinking, you know, as I'm now engaged in work um, at Friends of the Global Fight on you know, uh, how AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria harm people, that any major social problem, one of public health uh, in China, one of uh, the climate and the horrendous pollution threatening people's lives, um, the answers to that very often come from civil society. The dynamism, the questioning, the innovation, 
um, comes from civil society. And so um, what you um, stood for is, is not only important for the big goal, which is uh, change of governance in China, um, but smaller. And that's probably why Liu, who said in his speech uh, that he couldn't deliver his speech in absentia, um, that there's no force that could put an end to the human quest for freedom, and China will, in the end, become a nation ruled by law where human rights reign supreme. Perhaps we can talk a little bit how that might come to be. Yeah, terrific. Thank you. Uh, Jared. Well, thank you uh, to Hudson and also Eric for hosting this. And it's great to be on a panel with so many friends, uh, colleagues, uh, a former client, actually, uh, as well, uh, Yang Zhenli, who I represented while he was in prison in China. And thankfully, we were able to get him out. Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, in my brief uh, remarks here, I want to talk a little bit about the, the more recent history of Lu Xiaobo and Lu Xia from really when he went to jail in December 2009 through present. Uh, I want to talk about the events of this past summer uh, briefly. And then lastly, I want to talk about where I see their situation today and, and what I think has to happen next. I'm, of course, speaking as the founder of Freedom Now, an, an NGO, a nonprofit group that works to free prisoners of conscience around the world uh, through legal, political, and public relations advocacy efforts. I've served as pro bono counsel to Lu Xiaobo and then and Lu Xia since mid-2010. I was actually introduced by Yang Zhenli, um, who uh, had known and worked with Lu Xiaobo for many, many years and spent a lot of time with him, actually, after we were able to get him out of prison in the summer of 2007 and before we were able to get him out of China. Um, so just a quick synopsis of the last seven plus years here. Uh, he, of course, was sent to jail on subversion charges, as was mentioned in December uh, of 2009. He had been already detained for a year at that point uh, and got a very lengthy prison term for publishing uh, a range of different articles critical of the Chinese Communist Party. He, of course, was a huge threat to the party because he talked about the possibility of transforming the one-party system to a multi-party democracy, which was a lot more threatening to the Chinese government than uh, those who would call for the overthrow of the party uh, and the government, given that people's income levels and standards of living had been rising so substantially over decades. Um, I got to know Liu Xia with Yang Zhenli's help uh, through the middle of uh, 2010, and we were preparing to take his case to um, Liu Xiaobo's case to the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention. And then, of course, word started to spread about the possibility of him winning the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, Zhang Li and I spoke to Liu Xia in the days leading up, literally the days leading up to the awarding of the prize. And, uh, and I told her that you know, she had to make a, an important decision about whether she was going to stay in China or try to leave in advance of the prize being announced. And I made clear to her that uh, you know, it, uh, there's no right or wrong decision here. It's what you want to do. Uh, and from where I sit, uh, I am very worried that if she were to stay and he were to win the prize, that she would not be able to be free. I don't think I could have even imagined, nor could have Kafka, what she has been through since then. Uh, seven plus years of uh, arbitrary detention without charge or trial for no crime whatsoever, other than being Liu Xiaobo's wife. And on the day that the prize was uh, awarded, um, I was in touch immediately with the Norwegian Nobel Committee, uh, it was announced. Uh, John Lee and I were the ones who connected the call with Thorbjörn Yaglin, the chairman of the committee, to congratulate Liu Xia. They didn't actually have anyone on their staff that spoke Chinese at the Norwegian Nobel Institute. And John Lee and I worked together in representing Liu Xiaobo to the committee and uh, had really a surreal and extraordinary experience uh, together in the front row, uh, center seats, uh, representing Liu Xiaobo as the prize was presented to the empty chair. And I knew that night, and I said to John Lee that night uh, at the 
banquet with 450 people uh, and the king and queen uh, of Norway, that uh, tomorrow all these people will disappear and it will be you and I doing everything we can with as many people that we can get to help us to try to get them out, but that um, it was going to be an incredibly difficult and incredibly uh, challenging battle ahead. And it has proved to be just that. I mean, we won their cases at the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention. You know, over the years, uh, you know, we published dozens of op-eds, testified in, you know, 15, 20 parliaments, um, you know, leaned on everyone and anyone we could to try to get media attention to what was happening with Liu Xiaobo and Liu Xia. Um, and, uh, and obviously, uh, all that uh, came to naught, uh, you know, this past summer. Um, and the reality is that uh, Liu Xiaobo's imprisonment uh, coincided with China's dramatic rise on the world stage. And the self-censorship on the part of the West, and especially the US, the UK, and France, as the P3 members of the UN Security Council, um, to be willing to confront China on rights issues. President Obama um, was really um, totally unwilling from the White House to engage in China rights. He relegated right China rights to the State Department. Um, the last two years of the administration, I couldn't even get a meeting to talk about Liu Xiaobo's case. I could never get uh, the president or anyone at the White House to publicly call for Liu Xia's release from house arrest or even mention her name. And I asked for that more times than I can count, which is in part why I didn't get any meetings in the latter two years of the Obama administration. Um, and the reality is that China is very sensitive to these issues, and confronting China is the only way to secure assistance for people like Liu Xiaobo and Liu Xia. And, uh, and yet, China and Xi Jinping have managed to scare the West and even the most powerful countries on Earth um, into even not just even not even raising these issues, um, even oftentimes privately. Um, this past summer was uh, was devastating. I think there's no other way to describe it for anyone who knew Liu Xiaobo. I never met Liu Xiaobo, unfortunately, and obviously never will. Um, but I'd worked for seven years on his behalf. Uh, I'd gotten to know Liu Xia and, and told her in my last conversation with her that. Um, you know, she made the decision that her place was in China with her husband. And I said that whatever happens, I won't give up. I'll continue to work and advocate for your husband's release, for your release, if that were to happen, um, and until my dying breath. And uh, again, I could have never imagined how things would have played out. Uh, and this past summer was just horrific. I mean, it was uh, around-the-clock work. We were able to secure a medevac and the funding for it to be able to get him out. Uh, the White House, uh, President Trump was actually very engaged uh, privately. Um, although I can't speak publicly about that, but uh, he was pushing, uh, Chancellor Merkel was pushing, a range of other world leaders were pushing to try to get him out um, at per his wishes to have medical treatment. Uh, and obviously he, he died, and as if his death wasn't a enough of a tragedy, and it was a tragedy for so many reasons, for the Chinese people, for, uh, for Liu Xiaobo and Liu Xia, uh, Liu Xia personally, for the world. Uh, and for the symbol, uh, the symbolism of the death of Liu Xiaobo in jail. I mean, the last Nobel Peace Laureate who died, not, not only in jail, but in, in exactly almost identical circumstances, in fact, in a prison uh, hospital, uh, was Karl von Ossietzky, the German pacifist who was actually um, imprisoned after revealing German rearmament uh, at the end of uh, toward, uh, post World War I, and was imprisoned by Adolf Hitler. And he died under the Gestapo guard. Um, in a prison hospital uh, after having previously been imprisoned and not allowed to travel out of Germany to accept his own Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts. And this is precisely what happened with Liu Xiaobo, um, and it's, uh, it's absolutely terrible. Um, let me just lastly talk about where we are today and kind of what, um, what I think needs to happen next. Uh, the reality is that uh, 
not surprisingly, after Liu Xiaobo's death, Liu Xia's situation has fallen off the global agenda um, for a whole range of reasons, uh, both because it was hard to get it there in the first place, and him dying was really the only thing to put it back there, uh, uh, the great reluctance of world powers to confront China on human rights issues, uh, and um, the upcoming, obviously, Party Congress, uh, and uh, everybody watching and waiting to see what's going to happen there. Um, the only way that Liu Xia will be freed um, and be able to leave China is with President Trump, Prime Minister May, Chancellor Merkel, um, uh, President Macron, and others working together to push relentlessly to get them out, and to do so not just privately but publicly. Without that kind of pressure, there is no incentive of any kind for China to release her. She was the only person to be able to visit her husband monthly over the seven years, uh, eight years he was in jail before he died. She's the only person who was with him on, uh, his, in his dying days uh, as he was in the hospital. Uh, and you know, she is in this extraordinary nightmare that she is living on a daily basis now where she was disappeared by Chinese security officials after, um, uh, after his death, forced to cremate him, which is something that isn't regularly done in China, even though he, and bury him at sea, even though he grew up in a city a couple hundred miles from the ocean and had no connection to the ocean of any kind, because the Chinese authorities were not just afraid of um, him and his ideas, but they were even afraid of his dead body. They couldn't even stand to have his dead body put in Chinese soil so that people, people could remember him. Um, and I think that it demonstrates an extraordinary and profound fear that the Chinese government has of its own people. They spend more than $120 billion annually on domestic security alone, more than the budget for their peop the People's Liberation Army, which shows that they see where their threat is coming from. But ultimately, the world needs to come together with one voice. And there are a lot of different things that, uh, that I'm working on privately as well as publicly to push for this. Um, you know, we're also looking to move legislation to rename the street in front of the Chinese embassy, Lu Xiaobo Plaza, um, which I think is very, very important um, uh, to remember uh, him and her. But the one thing that I'm saying with respect to all these memorial events and discussions of Lu Xiaobo's legacy um, is that, you know, this is not the time to merely speak about the uh, extraordinary words that he published, his ideas, how enduring they will be, and how powerful they will be. This is the time for the world to come together to save his dying legacy, which is his wife. His wife has been held for more than seven years without charge or trial. She has suffered a heart attack, deep depression, isolated from family and friends, now being held virtually incommunicado and moving from city to city, being held by Chinese security officials. She has never been charged with any crime. All Chinese citizens, if they've never been charged or committed of a crime, have a right to a passport, and she should have a right to go abroad. When abroad, she'll be able to collect the Nobel um, Peace Prize money to be able to live a survivable life uh, outside of China. And Lu Xiaobo's legacy is not merely his words and what he meant to the world, but his most important, most enduring, and most um, uh, valued um, uh, person in his life was Liu Xia. Let me just conclude by just noting that they had a, a famously romantic relationship um, because he was so deeply in love with her. And one of his biggest regrets in his life uh, uh, in his, uh, and in the statement that he released after his conviction by his lawyer um, was the pain that he had caused her by being imprisoned. Um, but he spoke uh, so eloquently uh, in that last set of words the world would ever hear about how much he loved Liu Xia, how even in the darkest days of prison, that thinking of her smile and her face lit him up and filled him with joy. That uh, the uh, that in thinking of her, the, his dark cell was full of light. Um, and I think that 
the best legacy to Liu Xiaobo will be saving Liu Xia and enabling her to live out uh, in peace in the remainder of her days outside of China. So I would just ask all of you to do everything that you can think of doing, and I'm happy to talk to anyone who has any great ideas as well on top of what we're doing to help save Liu Xia, because there's nothing to me more important than that. Thank you. Um, Jen Li. Liu Xiaobo died a martyr's death three months ago. Many in the world still don't know who he was, who he represents. And many others are pretending that they have already forgotten him. But not you, Eric, not you, Professor Lagan, Jared, Professor Shi, and all of you who come to this event. Thank you. Well, as um, Milan Kundla wrote, the struggle of man against the power is the struggle of memory against the forgetting. So we must remember him. And I believe um, we can best remember him by embracing his legacy and following his example in the continued fight for freedom. And I want to you know, just uh, outline briefly a few legacies that we have to embrace and follow in our struggle. And given the situation where uh, Xi Jinping, you know, with a personal cult in the ruling position, ever since he came to that position, China has undertaken change, step by step, but systematically enough to have a radical different uh, era of uh, Xi Jinping with his predecessors, uh, where China, I think, is more dictatorial, more ideological, more repressive, and, um, you know, the situation. I think Liu Xiaobo's legacy is more important than ever. By 1980s, Liu Xiaobo was one of the most provocative thinkers of China. Uh, his academic integrity enabled him to, to maintain his uh, uh, independence. This is very important. He was an admirer of thinkers such as uh, Vaslav uh, Havel, and he prided himself on his intolerance of uh, hypocrisy, group thinking, and political pondering. Living in China where uh, peaceful dissent could mean a uh, uh, prison sentence. Liu Xiaobo struggled uh, with a dilemma. How could he stay truthful, true to his beliefs under such repressive uh, circumstances? Uh, this dilemma is even uh, more serious uh, facing the intellectuals in China. And Liu Xiaobo admired those rare human beings who, while um, living in totalitarian circumstances, managed to transcend the living within the lie and find a way to live within the truth. Liu Xiaobo said, quote, we need, not, we need not demand of ourselves any extraordinary courage nobility, 
conscience or wisdom. All we need to do is to eliminate lies from our public speech and give up the use of a lie as a tactic of dealing with the threats and the enticements of the regime. To refuse to lie in day-to-day -day public life is the most powerful tool for breaking down any tyranny built on mendacity. So this is a very important teaching to our uh, intellectuals and activists, uh, and everybody actually, for that matter, in China. I remember when Liu Xiaobo flew back from Be to Beijing from New York uh, in late April 1989. Actually, Chen Jing can testify. Chen Jing was uh, sitting in the audience, was a very good friend of uh, Liu Xiaobo. When Liu Xiaobo flew back, they had a tremendous discussion uh, that year. The largest march of the weeks-old protest was in full swing. That march was a strong testimony and a symbol indicating that the pursuit of democracy was not the goal of just a few distance, but the common hope of thousands of millions of Chinese citizens. From that moment on, Liu Xiaobo undertook a 28-year-long journey from a scholar to a committed fighter for democracy. Before his force and final arrest, he was widely recognized as a political leader. But this term, political leader, came to me as an ironic thing, because he never thought he would be a lead, political leader. This is a role this, he had never felt comfortable to play, but a responsibility which his sense of mission drove him to shoulder. So all friends can testify. He never thought you know, he would be a political leader. He would never feel comfortable. He was at last uh, arrested in 2008 for being the lead author and organizer of Charter 08. Professor Xu Sinatin, to me, was uh, also a lead signatory of Charter 08. We all know Charter, o uh, Charter 08 was published with the goal of spelling out reforms necessary to end one-party system in China and to establish a constitutional democracy. But I, to me, most important thing, most imp the importance of our Charter 8 is that in China, where we don't have a common political language, language, where without that language, people cannot have any meaningful discussion on any public issues, Charter 8 provides a base for a common language, the language based on universal values. Actually, if you read Charter 8, it did not say anything new. It's just common sense. But we need that common sense base, the language for people to talk about things uh, that is meaningful. So nowadays, as I said, China has become more ideological. So the official language is so far away from the reality, so far from reality. If you look at the internet, there's another set of language talk about the reality in China. So we need eventually, sooner or not, uh, later, a common uh, political language for the real change in China. 
That's the significance of a charter oid. Uh, since its release, Charter OIT has been signed at great personal risk by more than 14,000 citizens in China. So I just want to report to you, uh, taking this uh, a moment. Through intense struggles, Liu Xiaobo came to conclusion, which is very important, in uh, his uh, 2009 courtroom self-defense. Quote, hatred not only eats away at a person's intelligence and conscience, and can poison the spirit of entire people. It can lead to cruel and lethal internecine and combat, can destroy tolerance and human feelings within a society, and block the progress of a nation toward freedom and democracy. I hope that I can answer the regime's enmity with utmost benevolence and use love to dissipate hate. Just June 1989 was his turning point, uh, and that led to his new philosophy, which he summed up in these words, I have no enemies and no hatred, which is so important for the nowadays China, because China, back to the uh, old um, uh, ideological road where they advocate for violence. They actually re re rely on re violence for the continuation, uh, even perpetuation of the, this regime. As Professor Xu uh, uh, pointed out earlier, um, you know, this idea of no hatred, no enemy, and nonviolence is very important for our movement and for the future of China. Liu Xiaobo's sudden death before our victory brings tears and pain to everyone who shares his cause, values, and ideals. The international community stood helpless as Chinese government ruthlessly shattered Liu Xiaobo's last wish by prohibiting him from seeking medical treatment abroad and die as a free man. The free world's appeasement of the evil deeds of the Chinese regime is adversely affecting global democratization, which is exactly what Liu Xiaobo warned against a decade ago when he cautioned the international community must remain vigilant in the face of the increasingly cunning and adaptive Chinese communist dictatorship, which was set on global dominance. F from, flying, uh, from playing a, a pivotal role in Tiananmen Square movement in 1989 to suffering, uh, suffering a lonely death under police guard, Liu Xiaobo's fate has become both a symbol of the plight of China's democracy and an urgent warning to the world. In Liu Xiaobo's own words, to eliminate the adverse impact of the rise of China on world civilization, the free world must help this largest totalitarian country to achieve a democratic transition as soon as possible. I hope that Liu Xiaobo's example will continue to shine
on every freedom fighter, and his stern warning will not fall on deaf ears. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you uh, to all of you for your comments and your consistent and persistent efforts on behalf of Leo Xiaobo and Leo Xia, and uh, of course Leo Xiaobo's legacy and ideas.、Um, I have one question、uh, for perhaps everybody on the panel who cares to take it up, and that has to do with、um, why is it that the efforts of the the efforts and the persistence of the good people in China to change their government. And to bring greater freedom to their country、um, have have not entered into the world's consciousness in the same way that, say, the dissidents of the USSR in the 1970s did. Why is that the case? Both in terms of you know, Western ignorance, perhaps, or, or ignorance in the outer world, or is it also because of active efforts by the CCP to counter、um, uh, your efforts and the efforts by others?、Uh, I'm curious about this. We can find him. I'm sorry, translate for him. You you can begin. No, no, please. Yeah, yeah. I should ask that. This. Why is this? This. This. Perhaps you should go first. Professor Shu. Um, I, I think the reason is that Western people, especially Western people, they always have a sensitivity to the possibility of Bolshevik communism. They have a sensitivity to the possibility of Bolshevik c 他们没有充分的估计，他们认为中国是一个弱小的民族，中国人民的优点就转换成中中国共产党的优点了。我认为这是一个非常令人遗憾的认识上的误区。I think that's one uh, great pity uh, to uh, all those concerned that、uh, people in the West seems to have a better understanding of Bolshevik of the old Soviet Union. Uh, but a very, very underestimated, or、um, poor, rather poor understanding, what communist regime mean in China and to other part of the world.、Uh, that is,、uh, they believe the Chinese as a nation is weak, and there's not much、um, implementations out of this regime, and therefore I call it. It's a pity. Or innocent, perhaps it's a shame. It is a shame, Ambassador. Well, I just, you know, there are two possibilities about the view of、um, leaders and regular citizens around the world that may have them be less acutely focused on the plight of of dissidents and those whose voices squash in China compared to the USSR. One possibility is the the sense of well things will eventually inevitably change because economic growth will lead to political pluralism. And I did a, a study、uh, of elite opinion of businessmen, scholars, journalists, people in government, in the year 2000, and that was a a prevalent view. But it is not a prevalent view now.、Yeah. Um, it is. 
it is a deciding to stay silent about it because there's something bigger at stake, yeah. uh, that there is uh, money to be made or that China is powerful. Um, but I, the notion um, in people's minds that, well, it is absolutely inevitable that there'll be political change and so we don't need to push now is, is not the reason for silence. Um, I think it, it's a sense that it isn't going to change and we better accommodate the government of China that sadly is the um, explanation. Um, I just want to follow up with um, uh, uh, Ambassador Lagin. Uh, I think economic interdependence play a very, uh, very big role in all this, which the relationship between Soviet Union and the U.S. did not have. Right. Yeah. And um, I remember right after Tiananmen Square massacre, we came here to Washington, D.C., trying to advocate the U.S. Congress to continue to link the human rights with, uh, with trade. That time, China is, of course, under a difficult time trying to break, uh, have a breakthrough in terms of uh, international relations. And they try to do everything possible to resume trade and everything else. And we warned that trade without linked to human rights only infuse blood to this uh, regime. Uh, and uh, that time, you know, um, uh, there was a big bit debate um, uh, on, on the Hill and uh, among their um, uh, community of uh, policymakers. Uh, but when uh, President um, uh, Clinton took office, not long after he took office, he took a reversal, a big reverse of a policy. That reverse policy based on the theory that Ambassador Lagan just mentioned, which was uh, uh, held by most um, uh, businessmen, uh, policymakers, and politicians in Washington and everywhere else that trade will bring about economic uh, prosperity, which in turn will bring about political freedom. And uh, everybody seems to believe that, but it has not happened in China yet. Yeah. So with that, on that basis, you know, on that ground, uh, the, the U.S.-China policy has changed a great deal in the past uh, um, uh, two decades and allow China to join the WTO without you know, any conditions. China's growth just grow, grow, not only forming um, uh, you know, their, the image of effective governance, but also have a real political power and economic power to inf influence the whole world. We, I can speak from my own experience. So many um, business, I mean, American business, uh, uh, men, when they doing business, but it, when they return to United, they act as um, China's lobbyist or at least apologist. And uh, many, the penetration is uh, is incredible uh, in every aspect of this life, even high school, uh, not let alone universities. Um, you know, uh, every so-called China expert is so. Uh, alert to the reaction from uh, China about whatever they say. 
and they worry about, you know, they are not able to go to China to do field study or to even meet with the leaders. Or, you know, a lot of leverages China nowadays have against these people. So this is a, you know, very, very um, uh, important fact that I think American general public should know. And uh, we have to do something to roll back this uh, influence. And this influence uh, has, you know, uh, uh, to the degree that a friend of mine, uh, He Ping, termed it as China's virus. So it's China virus. This goes everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Another general question for the panel. It has to do with the future of nonviolent civic change within China, uh, the Gandhian model, and the future of the Gandhian model in China. Uh, the first question is, what can outsiders do to support the forces of nonviolent civic change in Xi Jinping's China, number one? And number two, what is the future of nonviolent civic change in China, particularly at a time when the party is becoming much, much more repressive, much, much more violent? I mean, in recent years, I've spoken to, among others, Tibetans and Uyghurs who face such a hopeless situation. Uh, that the younger generation is not willing to follow the path, the middle way, for example, of the Dalai Lama, or the nonviolent path that has been pursued by the older generation. Um, what's happening inside China now with those who are infuriated, frustrated, and driven to the brink by the one-party dictatorship? How does the, what does the discussion look like now among those who are seeking change within China? Yeah, so. 我对中国的民主前途，从长远来说是乐观的，因为中国毕竟要融入世界的文明。但是在短期内，我是非常非常悲观的。I mean, uh, from long uh, perspective, quite optimistic about China's um, future of democracy, because as a nation, China needs to be, um, you know, integrated into global community. Uh, but uh, at this moment, at the time being, uh, it's a different case. Twenty中国的目前的形式，我有一个比喻，我觉得二零零八年北京的奥运会跟一九三六年的北京奥运会是非常非常近似的。中国的法西斯的思想正在上升时期，所以我们现在要谈它的失败还维持上涨。And the 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 kissing point is. I would compare uh, the Beijing Summer Olympic in 2008 to that Olympic game in 1936 in Germany, Nazi Germany. Uh, because um, at present, China still seems on the rise. So it's too early to say that uh, it's going to be uh, doomed uh, anytime soon. 我念历史的时候，我知道在上世纪三十年代，西方很多人，欧洲的很多人，实际上对于德国法西斯的兴起，实际上是也认识不清楚。他希特勒的政策也得到了很多赞誉。我觉得现在中国的情况也是这样。As you can recall that back in 1930s and many Western countries also see um, at that time saw Germany under Nazi. Uh, different uh, from what happened later on. And probably the same thing happening to what the Western view China today.
。尽管现在对中国共产党和习近平的统治，现在有很多赞扬的声音，但是我坚信，再过半个世纪以后，人们在回顾现在的历史跟评价现在历史的时候，跟我们现在对德国法西斯的评价是一样的。Uh, even though that um, at present day that uh, uh, some comments on Xi Jinping's ruling in China is perhaps uh, positive, uh, but I believe that 50 years from now, uh, Xi Jinping would achieve the same reputation as that of Nazi Germany. Uh, Jared. Yeah. I mean, you were asking about the future of nonviolent protests in China. Let me kind of pivot off that and talk about the future of democratization of China, which are interrelated. I actually, I'm a very much of an optimist. Maybe I have to be because I'm a human rights lawyer. Um, but, uh, and I take on many hopeless causes. Uh, and, uh, well, that's kind of what we have to do. But um, I'm, I'm optimistic for a number of reasons. First, China and the world are mutually interdependent. We're in a very different place than we were 20 years ago. China can't walk away from its relationship from the United States or the EU or anyone else without dramatic and negative consequences. Um, and so if we actually press them on human rights issues, they're not going to walk away from the relationship because they just can't. We can't walk away either, just to be clear. But that's, it goes in both directions. Today, as we, as we know, every year, there are hundreds of thousands of protests that take place in China on primarily non-political issues, on the environment, uh, like a coal plant showing up in a small city of 10 million people uh, without consulting the local population, or land seizures, or privatization of state-run industries and having no, uh, you know, no pensions for, for those employees. Uh, and this is happening every single day in China. The response of the Chinese government under Xi Jinping has been to um, allow those protests not to, not to allow the organizers of the protests to be unpunished. But for an average Chinese citizen to show up at a protest is not something that's going to necessarily result in their going to jail. You combine that with the fact that there are now like seven or 800 million mobile phones in China. And despite the desperate attempts of the Chinese Communist Party to block access to the internet through the Great Chinese Firewall, there are many ways around it, and many Chinese are being able to access that. And access to information and uh, for, for people at all levels of Chinese society have dramatically increased. Uh, and as a result of all of this, I think that you know, while the Chinese government is hanging on, I, I do like to say about the Chinese Communist Party that there's no detail too small for them. I mean, they spend, you know, 120 billion plus annually on domestic security. They have literally millions of people monitoring the internet and every individual dissident and their family members and everything else. And they are holding on so, so, so tight. But the real solution for the problems that they're facing, and particularly if China were to face a major economic downturn, I mean, the people are placated because of the rising standard of living. But that isn't going to be inevitably possible to maintain the growth of the levels that they have had. And as the economic challenges facing China increase, hundreds of millions of people could become dissatisfied. And I think that that creates a reason to be able to talk to China about what are the outlets for the Chinese people to be able to have their grievances addressed, whether it be corruption of party officials at the local level, whether it be the environment or otherwise. And the judiciary is, for example, one place. We're talking about the rule of law, and maybe I'm a lawyer, so as I hammer everything I see as a nail. But, you know, the Chinese judiciary, which is neither independent nor impartial now from the Chinese Communist Party, is a potential area of development for the Chinese government that if 
people had places they could go where they had a legitimate complaint and it could be heard in an independent and impartial manner, they wouldn't feel the need to go to the streets and protest or to want to overthrow the government or to do other kinds of things. And so there are a lot of areas in which one, I think, can talk to China about what it needs to do here. But ultimately, I mean, they are sitting on a powder keg, I think, in terms of the size and scale of their challenges, their aging population, um, their you know, unwillingness to, to share power with anyone, um, and managing a country of that size. Uh, all of those things, to, to me, suggest that they're going to have to adapt and that what Li Xiaobo was talking about, about a transformation of the one-party system to a multi-party democracy, I don't think it's going to happen overnight or even in a decade or two. But I've got I mean, already we see now within the Communist Party on certain topics, debate allowed within a narrow set of constraints, right? And that's, that's just the little beginnings of what I think could hopefully then be a Damn breaking uh, over time, but but I am optimistic about the future. Thank you, uh, Mark. Just to comment, um, Elliot Abrams of the Council on Foreign Relations has recently published a book, Realism and Democracy, about how uh, democracy promotion is in fact uh, in the um, vital interests of the United States and the world to promote. And he uh, offers an observation that what's truly important is for political leaders abroad to speak to the real situation uh, in countries like China or autocratic governments. Um, they can uh, be engaged in quiet diplomacy on behalf of political prisoners and so on, but public is important. And he um, commented that also it was more important to help train the few political leaders of the future, people who will become politicians who will bring about change. And he questioned assistance to civil society um, as the focus of kind of the democracy industry, the NGO world in the United States. I actually think it, 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 you need the emphasis by leaders of countries, including our president, of um, the problem and the plight of civil society um, publicly. But you, we shouldn't give up on civil society just because it looks like it would be remarkably hard to assist civil society actors you know, uh, you know, with questions of registration and laws targeting civil society actors. Um, surely the world uh, is creative enough that it can be more creative than the uh, Chinese autocratic regime with its white-knuckled grip. Um, and I think it can be done. Um, Nonviolent methods um, are uh, both new and old. And the idea of using nonviolent methods and uh, mobilizing solidarity is the idea of the trade union. And uh, it, it, it is a model that can adapt uh, today and, in fact, undercut the ostensibly workers' state. Jimmy, um, to have a real change in China, democracy in China, four conditions must present at the same time. As necessary, kind of may not be sufficient. One is uh, the general robust um, discontent with the regime among the people, which is existing. This regime does not lack enemies. You, you know, can say you name it. Um, and uh, second, viable democratic opposition, uh, which is not existing. That's something we're working on. I will come back to that. Uh, and uh, number three, the split of the leadership in the regime. Uh, there's always a fight. Fight internally, some fight for power. But the track, the division that we hope is the division of a political alliance, the different political ideas that we have not seen, not, not seen now, 
but it happened uh, uh, during the Tiananmen time, but not now. The fourth condition, necessary condition, is international recognition of the democratic opposition and support when the really important moment comes, give real support. Okay, these are four necessary conditions. What actually changed since, uh, has changed since um, uh, uh, Xi Jinping came to power actually is the power base rely on which the communist, communist regime has continued its power to this day after uh, uh, Tiananmen massacre. That is uh, middle class, middle class. So called, you know, the theory we just uh, both uh, uh, Ambassador Lagan and I talked about, you know, pro uh, economic prosperity will, brought, uh, will bring about uh, political freedom. You know, it's based on you know, economic growth will produce a middle class middle class will automatically demand for political freedom, you know, based on that. But what happened in China in the past 30 years is that the regime has been co-opting, co-opting whatever you call, you know, middle class people or private, uh, yeah, commerce and uh, pri private entrepreneurs and business, uh, members, business community, all the elite you can see in the society were co-opted in the ruling structure. With economic downturn, and due to Xi Jinping's personality and ideology, uh, he changed that mode of ruling, which I call you know, co-opting elite for stability or buying stability ruling model. I used to describe it as a two-China two structure, the two Chinas, you know, the middle class above is one China, I call it China Inc. And the lower, I call it China of a citizen, I'm sorry for this uh, uh, word. But anyway, that's a two-player game for almost 30 years. But now Xi Jinping has changed that game to three-player with his anti-corruption campaign, with his ideology orientation. He tried to you know, nationalize a private capital and uh, turn more toward to more uh, 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 political idea. So I think he will adopt a middle way approach of more anything. That will alienate officials who has been spoiled by the crony capitalism that in practice in China for 30 years. It will alienate the private entrepreneurs, the middle class people. That's the deepest the crisis facing Xi Jinping. So the big middle class member uh, people are just turning their backs on this regime. So the question, to, to uh, the, I mean, the, to, to your question, how we come up with a viable opposition? I think the middle class people who are just turning their backs on the regime are caught in between the ruling regime above and ordinary people uh, below. You know, the people actually have no trust in this, you know, the, the, the elites. But this elite has to do something to win the trust of the people, to combine with the people. And another combi combination should take place. That is, the intellectuals like Liu Xiaobo and Professor Xu should combine with the ordinary people so that we can have a viable opposition in China. Without that, we will not have a real democracy in China. Thank you. We will come back to that, I promise. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. 
we're running low on time, and I know many of you have questions, so I did want to open it up uh, to the floor. When the microphone comes around, uh, if you could identify yourself, uh, your name and affiliation. Um, and thanks, sir, in the second row up here in the front. Uh, thank you. I'm Mike Billington. I'm with the Executive Intelligence Review. Um, you've all generally uh, portrayed the rise of China and the uh, economic clout they have as one of the major reasons people have not fought for human rights, both within China and, and internationally. But you could certainly argue that the reason there's not a mass movement for democracy within China is because they've lifted five or 600 million people out of poverty. And now with the new Silk Road, they are taking this development process, industrialization, real infrastructure, uh, to Africa, to South America, and to the rest of Asia, which they've been denied under colonialism and generally under post-colonialism as well. So I don't think this is just intimidation to make money, as the ambassador said, but this is real growth. And do you think it's worth giving up this tremendous transformation that's taking place economically through the Silk Road process led by China in order to have the kind of democracy that you're advocating? And, and do you think Trump should not participate in the new Silk Road and, and the AIFB and so forth when he goes over there this month, next month? Well, um, I think the United States should take care uh, not to shoot itself in the foot with its steps that it takes with respect to institutions that China is involved in. I mean, we should think through things with the AIIB, you know, in light of, you know, not losing leverage. Uh, I'm puzzled by President Trump's position that if he thinks China is eating our lunch on trade, then the right move was to step back from the Trans-Pacific Partnership and sort of hand them the baton. But more directly, you cannot deny that there is a huge impact on um, regular people in China of the economic growth uh, and that has lifted people out of poverty. And you can even acknowledge that that you know, has a bearing on human rights and the quality of life people have. Um, nonetheless, it's at quite a cost. And I, I think, um, particularly the Africans, but maybe others who would be involved in the Silk Road initiative need to think what comes along um, with, with the Chinese model. If um, the Chinese model for investment looks like it has fewer strings, um, than uh, World Bank, IMF loans, or USAID. Um, there aren't governance conditions. One might look at, at some more onerous strings. Um, for instance, those that African countries have to um, submit to in terms of access to resources or jobs going to Chinese rather than nationals of those countries. Thank you. Uh, another question. Sir, in the second row here. Uh, thank you for the, the very impressive panels. Um, I'm, I'm Satoshi Nishihata, uh, Washington correspondent of the Japanese political magazine, The Liberty, uh, it's, which is sponsored by the Happy Science Group in Japan, which is uh, the Human Happiness Research Institute, uh, the largest institute, I think, in Japan. Uh, my question is about the democratization of China. Uh, could the possible collapse of a North Korean regime uh, give any impact on the Chinese political system uh, in terms of uh, democratization, just like the fall of Berlin Wall had any impact, uh, some impact on 
the photo of Fascinating, Soviet Union. terrific question. Jian Li, would you like to? Oh, yes. Um, it's a very interesting question, but it's difficult to answer. Huh? And um, North Korea's issue, you are talking about North Korea's nu uh, nuclear issue, right? Uh, uh, I want to uh, begin with a broad uh, uh, issue, that is uh, China. I mean, CCP regime has been uh, relying on two sources of legitimacy uh, in the past three decades. One is fast economic growth. The other is uh, nationalism. The first source is largely in question nowadays. So we will see. We will turn more to the second, that is uh, nationalist mobilization and internally control to continue the, the power. But alternately, so this regime will become increasingly aggressive. So any, uh, I think uh, Xi Jinping will have, um, uh, Xi Jinping's need to have a war is become larger and larger. Not only to, and mainly it's for, for, for continue his power in China. Xi Jinping has clearly showed his uh, ambition to go beyond 10 years, the second term. And the question we should ask, what will be his new mandate, his mandate for the legitimacy, his continued power? He must find a mandate, either open up politically to have uh, some kind of election so that he become an elected dictator. I think he really want to be that, yeah. And he he modeled uh, on uh, Putin, but I don't know how likely he will be. He will achieve that goal, but if he's not lucky enough, he has to go through many many crises to get to that point. And sometimes he himself need to create it crisis, use it as a mandate to continue his power. And either eternal crisis or external crisis. Then I come to your question. So his need to have a war to create a crisis so that he have a new mandate to continue his power has becoming uh, a large, increasing large. And I think uh, any conflict with, uh, you know, including military conflict with other countries can have a very, very important factor for the change in China. Either he help US fight against North Korea, or it's itself to go against uh, uh, North Korea, or have a military clash with uh, Japan or Taiwan. All these crises can play a, a very, very important role. We'll set off a, a, a political process that uncontrollable in China. So, you were asking about the collapse of the regime and, a, and a, you know a, a, an illustrative effect it would have in, in, in China. I, I don't. Um, I personally think that um, a move towards even more of a, a crumbling and a fissuring of that regime in North Korea is more likely to to lead to a clampdown further by the regime. So it may be that the trajectory of um, Xi's rule would go farther and, and there would be public resistance. I do think the more important models 
or Hong Kong where things are going in the wrong direction and mm -hmm. Taiwan where they're going in the right direction and that it's very important for the United States and the West to think about those two and, and stand by them. I would briefly say that, that I mean, there is an 880-mile porous border between North Korea and China. And during the 1990s famine in North Korea, you know, literally um, hundreds of thousands, millions of people fled into China. That was back then where there wasn't CNN and a 24-hour news cycle and everything else. If there were to be a North Korean collapse, there could be an internal crisis in China and an international reaction to China if people fled, people, starving people started to flee across that border. Um, there's no easy way to stop it, and the consequences of the Chinese, which currently now refool all of these people, claiming them to be in violation of a bilateral treaty despite the Refugee Convention, which says that these people should be refugees surplus because it's actually uh, punishable by death if you're a North Korean to leave the country. Um, uh, and therefore sending them back after they've left subjects them to the death penalty. Um, but um, we also saw in Burma, I spent five years as Aung San Suu Kyi's international lawyer, and I mean, Burma's transition to a uh, semi-democracy has been very troubling and challenging for China. Having a democracy on their border for many Chinese people led them to say, well, if Burma could be a democracy, you know, the argument before is, well, Asia, you know, we need these autocracies or these managed regimes. But if now Burma, our neighbor, can be a democracy, then why can't we be a democracy? We're, we're culturally, they would say, probably superior to the Burmese. And yet um, the Burmese get a democracy and they get to vote their leader in, but we don't. And so these do create a lot of very interesting pressures, I think, on that. Yeah. I would say, posit that, that the conspicuous reality of a Chinese-speaking democracy on Taiwan that is not China will likely have a much more positive effect on internal developments within China than a crisis involving the collapse of a Stalinist dictatorship like the one that we see in North Korea. Um, uh, we have time for one more question, um, maybe two more questions. Uh, sir, in the second row and then So my question is a simple question. So how do you evaluate the education system, educational system? So for, compared with uh, Nazi Germany, Nazi Germany after the Hitler um, uh, power, the economic situation has improved, has improved. But uh, no democracy. At the time, the media has, was controlled. And education was Hitler-Jugend. So in China, how do you evaluate the educational system for the future? Education, education, effect of the educational system for the future democracy. How do you evaluate? Education教育从来都是为他政权的维持跟他的政治服务的，在五十年代、六十年代、七十年代都是这样。Speaking of education, its sole purpose in China uh, was to serve uh, the regime in its ruling, in its control, particularly since uh, the 1950s and 60s. I remember that uh, uh, that time Chairman Mao's very famous slogan uh, in education uh, was to um, serve the so-called proletarian uh, by educating uh, the young generation. 
，在一九七八年到一九八八年之间有一个大大的转变。那时候是赵子阳跟胡耀邦主政，中国向西方开放，学习西方的价值观跟西方的文化。那时候是中国的大学生跟中国教育最好的一段时间。And、uh, I remember that back in late 1970s and early 80s, when China was actually managed by、um, the liberal. Uh, Zhao Ziyang and、uh, Hu Yaobang, who were premier and、uh, party chief, and the China's higher education was more open to Western、um, system and liberal、uh, ideology, and I think that was the best moment of China's higher education. 在八一九八九年血腥镇压之后，这种情况完全又恢复到毛毛毛泽东时代。And after the、uh, Tiananmen massacre in 1989, and the whole、um, higher education、uh, was switched back to Mao's era. 在习近平掌握最高权力以后，情况变得越越来越糟糕。我我可以给你举几个例子。第一个例子是我的同事，他上上课讲了一讲了一点政治上不正确的话，他刚出教室，学校的。人保干部就来找他了，因为学生用手机已经把他讲课的内容发给了学校的保卫部门。And actually,、uh, since、uh, Xi Jinping came to power,、uh, the situation、uh, is getting worse. I can give you one example that I knew personally.、Uh, one of my colleagues was giving a lecture on the so-called politically incorrect、uh, issues in the classroom, and he was reported by one of his students. Uh, in recording, actually, it's a,、um, a voice recording, and reported to the、um, security guard in the uniform, and he was disciplined. The professor was disciplined for that kind of so-called politically incorrect、uh, talk. 我知道很多例子，我很多好朋友，他们是大学的教授，他们被大学开除，或者是调到图书馆工作，没有失去了授课的权利。And I know many uh, similar uh, incidents or examples、uh, who are my friend, and uh, they were um, uh, removed from their teaching position just because of their small talk,、uh, who were considered by the regime、uh, a little politically incorrect. And、uh, one example is that、uh, a professor was、uh, removed and put into the library、uh, doing so-called research work rather than teaching. 中国教育教育的前景非常不乐观，要恢复到正常的情况，可能还需要几十年。I have a very,、um, I would say,、um, very pessimistic、uh, view on China's education. If anything back to normal, it would take、uh, several decades. Ma'am,、uh, in the third row here. Thank you, presenters. It's just a fantastic presentation.、Um, my question is for、um, Dr. Yang Jianli and the Professor Xu.、Um, I just wish to know that is the is it possible to keep Liu Xiaobo's legacy inside China? Like,、um, you know, is it possible that his book, you know, Charter O Eight, be accessible to Chinese people and they be able to read it? Because、um, for Making China democratic, it is very important that the people、um, educate in democracy and what it is like.、Um, what Liu Xiaobo, Xiaobo hoped for Chinese people, and it's really good to that 
they are able to access his ideology, his ideas, his writings. Is that possible? That's my question. Yeah. Um, it is possible, but it's very difficult uh, with the, all the control of the flow of information. And even uh, people who want to get information forbidden by the government will do at very big personal risk. You know that. You know that better than I even. Uh, in Xinjiang and every area. But still, when uh, uh, Liu Xiaobo died, and I, I got an online uh, on our basis to look at the reactions from people inside China. So my guess is the number um, of the people who know Liu Xiaobo, who know the significance, who really respect him, it, it's larger, much, much larger than I ex expected. And um, just right after he died, quite a few businessmen came to me. And he's, they said in tears, say, I, we never thought Liu Xiaobo's life has anything to do with us. But now we know it does. It matters so much. And they, they want to help. So I think uh, uh, many, many people in China actually know him, know his significance. If you are an uh, uh, inquisitive information looker, uh, you will find a way to get away the firewall to find uh, the information. I think more um, and more people are doing it. So I, st I have a very, very uh, high hope on that. But the number of the people who come to read Charter 08, albeit uh, uh, small, is growing. It's growing. Oh,我再补充一点。我觉得从刘晓波由于他的他在中国有很多非常要好的朋友，他的微信也非常之高，所以刘晓波逝世之后纪念他的活动非常之多。我我我从国内我我得到很多信息是非常令人鼓舞的
Yes, it is. And thank you very much. We, we would like to revisit that and will in the future. Um, thank you all of you for coming and, and thank you very much to all of our panelists for everything that they've done and for being here with us today and all that they'll do in the future. Um, we'll be back. So thank you all. Thank you.